に Hello and welcome to QA Quest episode 75, Wheels. And we kind of have a different random format for the show this week.、Uh, <coughs> scheduling conflicts and whatnot due to the holiday weekend. <coughs> so, yeah,、um, with me for this portion is. Your man in Japan, Michael Baker. Yes,、yeah, be another s- segment with Dave as well.、Uh, so, <coughs> I'm going to go through some of the questions from last time.、Uh, knock on wood. What's that? Knock on wood. Yes, knock on wood. Uh, so, uh, did you want to talk about metal? I think we should save it for another time. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did beat it. I am about a third of the way through the map again on hunter mode for the second playthrough just because I, I want to see how many things I can beat up. And just for the hell of it, I've got my hero and my two weakest characters piled into a dune buggy loaded with high power weapons. <laughs> taking out everything, literally taking out everything I can.、Um, just to see how far I can get with just the one vehicle. <laughs> that sounds pretty fun. Yeah. It's just. There are things that could have been better. Yeah. <coughs> well, hopefully. There's enough good in this game, at least, that、uh, people in the West will find out what makes the series so interesting. Oh, yeah, I can hope of that. Maybe at least do better than the last entry that came over here. True. So, want, want a whinge bit about Metal Saga? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, there, there are, I mean,. I, I wasn't sure I was ever going to do a review on Metal Saga, and when I did, it was specifically in the context of here are all the things that this game did that, will, that were never repeated again in its series, and for good reason. <laughs> and I'm happy to see that Metal Max Xeno at least does not actually repeat any of these mistakes. Like any good game of the series, it finds a whole new series of mistakes to make. <laughs>、um, but at least, it, at least it will be an interesting experience to find out what they are this time. <laughs> it's good. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm looking forward to seeing what people think of it. And, yeah.、Um, I mean, I wish it was coming to. I really wish it was coming to the Switch as well, because then it definitely would have gotten some attention over here. But, I mean, people are still buying lots of niche games on the PS4, so. <coughs> should do fine. Uh. Me, I've finally gotten back to playing more Alliance Alive and have been making some progress. And I think I got a little too cocky because I was like, yeah, this game's a bit on the easy side.、Uh, oh, did you hit the snow country? Not yet. I, so I hit,、um, <laughs> I hit a dungeon. I'm still in like, the Fireland.、Uh, got like, the, the duck robot thing. Traveled to this dungeon. Um... <laughs> Fought some water demons on the way to the boss in there, but still was feeling good. Didn't save anywhere. Did not save, any- <laughs> Did not save anywhere on my way to the boss. Got to the boss. Was like, okay, you know, this game is still relatively on the easier side. I'm a little low on SP, but, you know, this is going to be fine. It'll be fine. It's all, it's all fine. And got completely wrecked. Retried、yes. it a few times. No, no, no go. And finally had to resign the fact that I'd just thrown out about an hour of progress. <laughs> yeah, thankfully I, I learned that you need to save everywhere after the first 15 minutes when I walked too close to a lake. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, I had you to warn me not to do that. Yes. <laughs> Which, yeah, that it, and that actually made this dungeon pretty scary, because I'm like, oh, there's a water demon under this rock. A water demon? Oh, God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Legend of Legacy had the shadow giants, and this game has the water demons. Oh, I forgot all about those shadow giants. Those things. Oh. Hey, I, I once managed to spark five different attacks in one battle against one of those guys. Wow. Very early in the game. I mean, if you're selective about when you run into them and know when to run, yay. But yeah, my second time going through it now, I, um, Decided to actually pay attention to formations, so I'm using the defensive formation, or the one with one person guarding and two attackers, and actually making use of a shield, and I already sparked like five different skills, so... <laughs> Look to be in better shape, but we'll see how the, the eventual boss fight goes, but... Glad to be, finally be making... A few other releases came out, and I kind of got distracted for finish this I'm game. I've got a list of things I need to get back to this year. Yeah, I am easily distracted by shining you out. <laughs> Try not to be for a while so I can finish this game. Because it is really good, and I hope uh, I hope people give it a chance. That pe enough people gave Legend of Legacy a chance. That, uh, obviously, Atlas. Hopefully enough people pay attention that whatever comes next will make it over as well. I'm going to guess on the Switch, um, if assuming there eventually is another game, but we'll see. We shall see. I mean, Furio seems to be one of those um, companies that follows the Nippon Ichi standard, and it's like if it succeeds enough to, or up to a certain level, then we will keep trying. Yeah. Um, there's no other way to explain how some of its other series have continued. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm really surprised that, uh, what's the name of that witch game? Got a sequel. <laughs> It's in the 109. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Everyone's surprised at that one. Yeah. But I guess somebody liked it. Alright, anyway. Let's move into an actual question, which is uh, from Budai. And it is, is there too much hand-holding in modern games? Which I think is a question that has come up a lot in recent years. So I thought it seems like a good one. Well, we could go back to Metal Max on this one, actually. Yeah, that's, there you go. Well, um, yeah, like... Again, going back to the one game that anyone might have experience with, with Metal Saga, that game has zero hand-holding. <laughs> I mean, zero as in... I don't know what the J English manual is like, but the Japanese manual just said, it's a big world out there, go and find stuff. <laughs> nice. <laughs> stop. Um, and with very little explained on anything, um, Metal Max Xeno, unfortunately, um, is quite a bit more linear than that. So, you always know where you're going in that game. And it's very helpful. It helpfully marks out uh, treasure chest locations and stuff on your map. Because you apparently have super radar of some of multiple types. Nice. Yeah. <coughs> uh, so, <coughs> what's usually your preference? Do you like a lot of explanation? A little bit just to get you going? Lots of hand-holding? This really depends on the style and format of the game mm. and how easy it is to navigate the map. Because the different game I've been playing randomly over the last few months, Tales of Innocence, mm. it took me 
ever to figure out how to navigate on that world map. That world map is and, awful. <laughs> and um, just judging from that one and from Tales of the Tempest, I can understand completely why, ta why Tales of Hearts 4 went having a world map for over half the game. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, oh, a well-organized, well-actuated interface for maps and things in a game will eliminate the need for hand-holding in a lot of ways, because you can tell, oh, I haven't been this way yet, I might want to try looking that way, or you don't actually have to be told where the target is, you can usually find it on your own. Um, <coughs> so... And then, I mean, there are some games where the, the battle systems have so many random little sub-things to them that you really do kind of want some hand-holding early on in the form of tutorials or stuff. Yeah. But then you have games like Final Fantasy XIII, which just stretch it out for a game. <coughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely uh, the worst... The, the worst-case scenario as far as, as far as hand-holding, as much as I like that game... Uh, yeah, it's an intricate battle system, but you have to have some respect for your players that they can figure some things out and not need, like, six to eight hours of extreme hand-holding just to learn what's... Yeah, it's intricate, but not that complicated a battle system. And, and of course, going... I mean, talking about hand-holding for battle systems, um, I managed to relearn something about the Metal Max series this past week that I had completely forgotten about because I'd never used this tactic before. Um, but yeah, you can pile more than one character onto a tank. Oh. And I'd never really bothered with that because I was always going for maximum amount of firepower. But certain character classes among the various games learn evasive driving techniques. Hmm. With the intent of them being the driver and somebody else being the cannon guy on the on the tank. And as it turns out, this is this particular strategy is what makes the final boss of Metal Magazine beatable. <laughs> because because you really do need at, at least two people with evasive driving to buy yourself about a dozen rounds of not getting hit much. Survive. <laughs> The final boss of this game. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that, that was my reaction. When I first Googled it last Saturday, I was like, okay, how can I beat this thing? And finding all the Japanese um, sites recommending single tank tactics. I'm like, single tank? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? I haven't done this in Season of Steel, and that's because they, <laughs> man they made it mandatory in that game. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That kind of happened to me with um, the original Etrian Odyssey, where the healer has some skill that, like, uh, will greatly reduce, like, elemental damage for a round or something like that. And the final boss is, like, nearly impossible without using the skill. Uh, nothing else, no, like, no other battle in the game really needs this. It's just, like, the skill is, it's, like, essential for the final when I figured this out, I had to like, I had to do whatever they call it, where you set your, you have to set your character back a few levels, and then you can respect them, and it's just yeah. really, really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, for me and my one tank, three people strategy, um, the particular class in the game that learns this ability, it was the one that I had been ignoring the most. Ooh. And, and you need to get it up to rank seven in order to get the ability. So I ended up farming Battleship Zaruses. <laughs> I'm not sure how many of these things that I killed, but just, um, I, um, well, the game gives you certain, um, like, uh, kind of, uh, special spec point rewards for doing certain feats in the game. And one of those is destroying the defenses of, cer of a certain number of monsters. And judging from the number of achievements I got in that series of breaking shields, I must have killed about 30 to 40 battleship Zaruses. Wow. <laughs> I got it down to a science, uh, like <laughs> five rounds or less. Wow. <laughs> I still cannot beat the mothership Zarus. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I, I definitely have still have things to do in that game, which is why I'm still talking about it, even though I said I shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> so, But yeah, um, other games I have lined up, I just recently booted up West of Loathing on my computer. I just thought that was coming to Switch. Looks interesting. It is hilarious. It is everything I would have expected from Kingdom of Loathing done as a more traditional game. So. Interesting. Yes. Because it's just it's all stick figures, right? Yes. Um, the original game was supposed to be a lampoon of everything um, massive multiplayer online. <laughs> um, I mean, ridiculous stuff. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> you, you should try the web game sometime. Um, I mean, it's a game where, or the original game was a game where when they first rolled it out, the guy who designed it realized that they hadn't actually put in a, they didn't actually have an image ready for money, so he just substituted an image of a stake. <laughs> and then they decided to roll with it, where the money is actually meat. Wow. The reason you get money by defeating monsters is because you're whacking bits of meat off. <laughs> um, you use meat as a construction material that you can eat. Um, yes. This sounds pretty hilarious and awesome. I need to check this out. <laughs> yes. And um, they decided to come up with three new classes for the um, for West of Loathing. Um like the game uses three basic stats called muscle, mysticism, and moxie for dexterity. And in the internet game, they've got two classes per main stat. Mm -hmm. So for if for your muscle guys, you have seal clubbers who are muscles with moxie as a secondary, and then you have turtle tamers who are muscle with mysticism as a secondary. <laughs> Basically, the kind of shaman druid type. And, but for West of Loathing, you have cow punchers. <laughs> <What>? Exactly. <coughs> so wow. Mastering the art of punching cows. <laughs> because this is very important because the, the seminal event in West of Loathing that causes a lot of the bad stuff to be happening right now is an event called When the Cows Came Home. <laughs> And we're talking about demonic bovines <laughs> and smoke and toxic gas and everything. Wow. Yes. So yes. So uh, yeah, when the cows came home is not a 
just to turn a phrase, it was a cataclysm, or a cataclysm. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's one game. Um, I still have I still have Tales of Innocence in my 3DS. I'm playing it primarily for the story at this point because I have not turned off the automatic battle function for 20 game hours. Wow. At this point, it just got it was just so, too annoying to deal with the very high encounter rate in that game when the controls are just off. So. <laughs> so you're saying we didn't miss much with that game never being localized? Not really, no. Um, I mean, Alpha System did come up with a pretty good story. It's just they weren't that good with the, the 3D field battle system. That's a shame. I mean, you know how it's usually like press up button and action to do something or press left and right whatever to do yep. something? It's almost impossible to do up plus action. Oh. Yeah. I mean, you spend most of the time jumping. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty damn awful. <laughs> but in better news, first of all, I've managed to finally get the cheap PlayStation 1 game out of my old PlayStation 3. Woohoo! Yay. It did not require major appliance surgery, like I was told. Thank goodness. What game However, was... I will be getting rid of this thing pretty soon. <laughs> what game was stuck in there? Um, it's called Asuncia. Hmm. And it was on my... Um, remember last year, or a couple years ago, I blogged um, like just all the games I, I had on my backlog, and I gave them like one hour, and then decided to keep or throw them away? <laughs> Um, this is a game that I had decided not to keep, except it got stuck in the PlayStation 3, and I couldn't oh. get rid of it. <laughs> so, you know, I might just finish it anyway, just out of respect for its sheer customs. <laughs> um, but, no, um, yeah, I, I got myself a PlayStation 3 Slim a couple of weeks ago for about $100. Nice. And it has a mechanically opening top, and not one that relies on disk drive in motors. So I can be sure to actually be able to get the game <laughs> out every <good> stuff. <laughs> and I've just spent most of this morning figuring out how to get all of my downloaded content from the first PlayStation to the other PlayStation. And since I don't actually care about game saves or anything, it's making it a lot easier since I don't have to bother with that mess. Do you have everything backed up on the... Oh, you don't even care. I was going to say, you can just back it up on the cloud and download it on... But I don't really care. Yeah. I, mean, if I'm, I mean, a lot of these game saves that are on this PlayStation 3 are for games I no longer own. Yeah. And the ones that I do uh, still own, the handful, most, are mostly Atelier games, where if I pl replay them, I'm going to be starting from the beginning anyway. Yeah, nice. So I'm more interested in the fact that I still have some of the DLC content for these things mm. on available. And um, yeah, I just figured out how to get them onto the other PlayStation, so they're downloading now. Nice. Yep. That and Manichemia 2, because I just happened to have that. Isn't that a PS2 game? Yes, it is. However, I got a free download code for it with Atelier Aisha about huh. this was seven and a half years ago? I think. Wow. Never actually got around to playing it, um, but then I realized, you know, um, I really should sometime, and now I'm glad I can do it without having to keep my old PlayStation. 
<laughs> that was one I always wanted to play because I played the first one, unfortunately, on PSP. Uh, yeah, I heard that that version wasn't that good. Yeah, it's pretty rough. But I like the whole alchemy school concept. It was pretty fun, and it looked like the sequel uh, was better. I just never got around to it. Uh, we didn't get get it on the PSN, so I would. Because <laughs> I don't turn the PS2 on, well, I'll have to get around to that one at some time. So let me know. How, let me know if it's any good. Well, I mean, I won't be playing much of anything most of the time because, for the most part, my PlayStation spends its time in the back room. Yeah. Uh, um Just not enough. I don't really have a lot of free time with my personal time with my consoles. Yep. So um, I will be digging them out on random days. Today, luckily, I don't actually have any afternoon classes. I just had one class this morning, so I was able to just come back and do a lot of laundry and figure out what I'm doing with these things. Nice. Yep. <coughs> yeah, I've had to relegate a lot of my console time to what what can I play in front of the kids and would they enjoy watching me play it or playing it with me? Yep. <coughs> I actually just fired up a game called Owlboy. Uh, that my son enjoyed. Ah. It's a fun, like, retro-styled platforming-ish game that seems pretty cool. Yeah. Should we jump to another question? Sure. And of course I navigated away from the page. Seems a lot of games have come to an optimal con control scheme that is very similar. Do you think this makes a lot of games feel the same? Um... Not particularly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. I think in a lot of cases, it's just, uh, like, these button placements work the best. Like, a good example would be, obviously, first-person shooters. You pick one of those up, generally, the controls are all the same, and I don't think that necessarily makes them all feel the same, because they can be pretty different. It's just a matter of, there's been a lot of those, and they've been able to figure out what works best and just keep using it. So, you know, I think it's the, the whole old phrase, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Ergonomics. Yeah. I think if game if games for you, Budai, are specifically feeling too, sim too similar, I don't think it, the controls are the reason. It's probably because they're just... Games that are doing a bunch of the same stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of some games that actually did something really strange with their control format when they were like a PlayStation game and they didn't have much choice in what controllers they had. Unlimited Saga? And, uh, huh? Unlimited Saga. Oh, please, I'm trying to forget. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm trying to forget this other one, too. Um, Pal, Shinken, and Setsu, where it was set up where you could actually play the game one-handed either way. That's weird. So you, you could rearrange the control schemes to make the L button, um, L and R buttons, the or L1, L2 button, the... Um, actually, that one didn't have L1. You can make it so that the game is completely playable one-handed. Either hand. And as I noted in the review, it just made it much easier to Google the YouTube videos while trying to play it. Because <laughs> so. there's a game that did a lot of things interesting, and most of them not well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of anything with a weird control scheme. What keeps coming to mind that doesn't necessarily have a weird control scheme is Resonance of Fate. 
And I think that's just because that game does weird things that you wouldn't really expect. Like, it's essentially sort of turn-based strategy, but you what you do is you set your characters off running in a direction and make them jump, and you have to, like, aim and select targets and stuff in real time as that's going on. And, yeah, just, <laughs> just a weird game, not necessarily a weird control scheme. And Chris, I'm, I'm still thinking largely physical control schemes, so anything with Switch probably counts. Yeah. Especially anything with the... the uh, let's see, what's the right word for this? Um, cardboard punk. <laughs> the cardboard punk um, materials. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can get some really interesting control schemes out of those things. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, you know what's... <laughs> Can't believe I didn't think of this. Anything to anything with the Vita and the rear touch screen <laughs> always feels very weird. Yeah. Um, trying to think of a good. I haven't actually played any games that made use of the rear touch screen no, yet. I've I've seen some like weird uses of it. This some are simple. Like they there's like I think two different panes on the back or something. So they would use that for just like two extra buttons. Essentially. <laughs> essentially. But there was something else, I can't remember what the game was, where you had to, like, control something by moving your finger around on the rear plate of the Vita. I can't remember what game it was, but it was just really weird. Now, I know the Monster Mong Piece games all did stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I that's... that. I haven't tried any of them. I haven't tried it either, but I know you had to. you would have to, like, put one finger on the touch screen and one finger on the back and, like, move your, fingers, move your fingers along both of them. Yeah. To, like, open up a pack or something. Uh, Gravity Rush uh, had a weird, somewhat weird thing. Just it, <laughs> to do, like, a sliding mechanic, you had to put, like, one thumb, both thumbs on, like, two different corners of the touch screen. And just mm-hmm. not really... In- yeah, and so there we give the some one of the bigger issues with trying to do something like this. You have to realize that most gamers will just look at it and go, what the hell are you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, different oddities. Um, Sigma Harmonix and Sword World 2. The only DS games I own where you have to hold the, the DS vertical or horizontal uh, oh. sideways. <laughs> and, and they're f- really fun. You just have to get used to it. Yeah. And I don't think that that control scheme was used on any U.S. release DS games. I think it only comes up in, like, uh, parts of Bowser's Inside Story and the Brain Age games. I think that's it. I mean, it was always more common for some of the um, light novel-type visual novel games. Yeah. I don't, I don't think any games came over here that, like, required you to play like that the whole time. <laughs> But yeah, I think there were a lot of games like in the Wii DS era that tried to do strange things with those control schemes that just did not work. One of them that sort of worked, but still it was just weird, was uh, The World Ends With You. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, with the the top controls and (laughs) bottom controls. Yeah, so you had to to control a character on the top screen with the D-pad, and then you controlled... The other character on the touch screen with the stylus, and, and that's just a little too busy. Yeah, too busy. Um, I actually like the battle scheme and own tablet port they did of that game because they basically 
took the other character and made it like just another action you do. Regular Corsica, I think it works a, a bit. But then that also works a bit better because it's kind of a better touchscreen anyway. So, and the Wii did lots of weird things, which you'd think would, yeah, which you'd think would be well, you know, you're doing motions and that should be more intuitive, but mm, not so much most of the time. But yeah, you can at least see why Nintendo games would end up with some of the weirder control schemes because Nintendo consoles and platforms tend to have fun with that kind of thing. Yeah, two varying results, but, you know, I certainly admire them trying at least, but, you know, but that's, you know, that's the that's the thing here. You look at all the complaints people had about all the weird control schemes and you know, <laughs> back to if it ain't broke, why, why fix it? Oh, excuse me. Especially on the more traditional controllers, you know, we've had since, like, the DualShock, we've had that sort of controller for a while now, and I think uh, pretty much things have been figured out really well. So, all right. Um, you want to do one more question? Sure. All right. Um, what do you think of status effects? Hard to balance them. Very few games can make them useful and <coughs> not overpowered. Uh, Shin Megami Tensei comes to mind. Um. Depends on the game. It depends on the. Um, well, it depends on the status ailments. Yeah. I, I, uh, but I would be willing to say that I don't think any Final <coughs> Fantasy really did it well. No. It. Since the beginning, they've seemed to just be throwaway things in battle for the most part. Um, I mean, there's a few cases where they were done well, but even even then, it's like, okay, this one is done well in this game, but most of them are just pointless. And I think um, and like the fact that you had to poison the final boss of Final Fantasy Thirteen in order to win. Yeah, it's, it's so uh, counter. It was so counterintuitive <laughs> by that point. Yep. Because nobody ever expected poison to really be worth anything. Yep. Um, the one status ailment I thought was really cool, but was in a game I hated, was in Final Fantasy XIII 2. They had a status ailment where when you get hit by a certain kind of damage, it reduces your max HP, which I think is nasty and requires, like, requires you to kind of change up what might be your normal strategy, because, you know, you can't, like, just grind out a battle, because eventually you're just going to run out of hit points. Like, even if you have a ton of healing items. There were, like, healing items that could cure this ailment, but they were, if I remember correctly, like, a little bit rarer, so, you know. And Final Fantasy XV kind of used this a bit as well, where uh, your character's max HP would also go down over the course of battle, and you'd have to use specific items to, like, kind of kick it back up, so... And, and, of course, Legend of Legacy and Alliance Alive did that in lieu of life points. Yes, and I, I really like that in, that in there as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorites in recent history was from Crypt of the Necrodancer. Another game I need to play. Yeah, that's one of the few... That's about the only game I know of that has deafness as a status element. <laughs> Does it, like, turn off the music? It it dampens it down to really really low levels for a few oh, seconds. Wow. Yeah, um, but yet 
you get hit with that every time you smack a banshee. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And among other things, yeah. That's pretty cool, though. I like I like when there's a status ailment that really kind of just fits like that. And then, of course, inevitably coming back to Metal Max. Um, <laughs> say, um, actually, Metal Max Xena didn't have this, but most of the games in the series had acid as a status ailment. <laughs> Specifically on tanks. But occasionally on people. Yeah. Um, and so you needed special alkali spray in order to neutralize it. But, um, but yeah, so you could have weapons that shot acid. There was, um, I know in Metal Max 4, there was a specialized cannon that shot cement rounds. <laughs> and if you, if you managed to peg an enemy with one of those, its evasion rate went down massively, which made it a major strategy point for several bosses. Nice. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Thinking of some of the ones in the Dark Souls series, which are predictably quite brutal. Yeah. Um, or, uh, like oh, the, I'm remembering a horror story from old World of Warcraft. Is, um, that, is that where there was a status ailment that turned into, like, a world plague or something like that? Yes. <laughs> um, it was supposed to be supposed to be confined to this one boss. Oh, yeah. It, <laughs> because it was like a super poison effect where it was... Like make literally made you bleed out in seconds if you didn't have enough potions to be con- continuously feeding them to yourself in order to stay alive, um, and so it was so virulent and and contagious to other people on the field that it wasn't ever imagined that it would ever leave that boss arena. And then some people figured out that hey, it was possible to infect a familiar or a pet with it, put them into storage immediately. Oh. <laughs> And they would stay alive and still have the status effect whenever you pulled them out again, even Whoops. if it was in the middle of the city. <laughs> far, far away from where it was supposed to be. And so for a couple of weeks, World of War several servers on World of Warcraft turned into a an actual textbook study in how people react to plague conditions. Wow. And with um, people, most people avoiding the cities entirely, um, large assemblies of people just not appearing anymore because you never knew when some idiot was going to come out and pull out their <laughs> nearly dead dog laugh and run off. Oh god! Uh, rich people being able to, the rich characters being able to afford all of the potions needed to stay alive for the fairly short period of time before the status ailment ran out. <laughs> I mean, it didn't last very long, but. It just wiped you out completely if you weren't prepared. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. Yep. Oh, and, and then Kingdom of Loathing did a parody of it called the Great the Great Plet um, the Great Death. <laughs> it was a, it was one of their one of their um, major um, like seasonal events like ten years ago. So it was kind of just the same thing, or did they do something silly with it? They turned it into an actual zombie plague and had, oh people, shooting, had people shooting each other with syringes to try and vaccinate each other. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And now I definitely want to play that, that um, West of Loathing whenever it comes to Switch. It's already on Switch, isn't it? <laughs> I, don't think it's, I, I don't think it's released yet. Maybe it, maybe it is. Hold on. I looked that up right now. Say, what, what did Severin 
uh, review. Maybe it was maybe it just came out today. Oh yeah, it is out now. I am going to purchase that because that sounds hilarious. Yep. All right. Okay. I will be picking that up. <coughs> uh, I was going to bring up some of the uh, status ailments in the Dark Souls series that are awful. Um, they have like they have poison, and then they have like a worse version of version of poison. Then they both just steadily reduce your life total until it the ailment runs out. There's obviously items that can carry it instantly, but if you don't happen to have any of those, you're probably going to die. Or use up all your healing potions. The worst, though, is the curse status ailment, which um, reduces your life, your max life by, by about half, and reduces, like, your damage output by about the same. And I think it even makes, like, your weapons, your the durability of your weapons and armor decrease quicker. Wow. And... Of course, this is this is a game that is designed to kill you in as many ways as possible. Yes. Um, the the worst one in Dark Souls, though, which is one that I remember being horrified by and getting accidentally, is there's these innocuous creatures in the one of the later portions of the game mm -hmm. uh, that don't really do much. You can kind of walk up and kill them easily, but if they happen to attack you. They like, uh, if like, bite you in the head or do something and like inject some sort of seed into your head, and you die. And when you come back, uh, like some sort of weird mushroom or thing starts growing on your head. And I forget how the heck you get it off, but it's not easy. But if you leave it on there and like let it get worse, you can uh -huh. <laughs> you can. I think you can join like a covenant and unlock certain items and stuff. Wow. It's yeah, it's really weird. Very, very weird. <laughs> uh the other ones like that. The only other salmon uh, somewhat similar one that I always thought was funny was in Earthbound. You can get that like spore attacks and they cause mushrooms to grow on your character's head. It was actually a nice status ailment to get because you'd go to the hospital and, like, the doctor would buy the mushroom off your head, which I thought was pretty <laughs> sweet. So it's like, yeah, this sucks and there's negative negatives to it, but hey, you get some money. <laughs> so that that really makes me think that the guys who did Mother and Earthbound had really enjoyed the movie Matango. Is <laughs> that just seems like the kind of thing that they would like? Yeah, definitely that weird offbeat stuff but yeah I think that's all, all the cool ones I can think of um, the one that I think annoyed me the most uh, as a kid was in Secret of Mana we'd get the status ailment that messes up your controls <laughs> oh the confusion <laughs> yeah. I always I, I, always I hated be, that I got really good at just going opposite way <laughs> uh, uh, no okay good one here Saga Frontier Yes. For the, for the arcane card um, Cups Quest, you had to visit every brewery in York, um, one of the little worlds in the game, and you got progressively drunker after each visit. 
and then you had to navigate the swamp outside of town, which should have been really easy, except you were drunk. <laughs> and you could not walk a straight line. Oh, my God. And whenever you inevitably got into battle with these little monsters that you should have been able to avoid, except you couldn't because you were drunk, um, you were hit with the drunk status effect where you had trouble hitting anything. <laughs> and funny, funny enough, this was not the only game I can think of that has drunk as a status ailment. Uh, what else did? Um, at least two of the PlayStation 2 era Atelier games. Oh. They even had these little teddy bear-like enemies called the Kegel Bears, who um, one of their abilities was to just walk up to you and offer you some wine. It would heal you, but it would also severely mess with your ability to hit anything for the next few rounds. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, there's the true reason why we never got Atelier Violet in English. It's because, not not just because of the drinking in battle, but the fact that there was one event where getting a particular character to join you involved getting into a drinking contest, and Violet is canonically underage. Ooh. I mean, she's 16 in the game, and actually, she's not actually in the drinking contest. Somebody else loses a drinking contest with against this other lady. And, or, or at least they regularly do. They keep challenging her to drinking contests. And they finally bring in this carrot-based liqueur that the lady just refuses to drink because she thinks it smells awful. But Violet loves everything involving carrots. <laughs> and so she just downs the entire glass and thinks it's great up until the point where she passes out five seconds later. <laughs> So yeah, um, underage drinking. <laughs> For that matter, underage drinking in most of the Metal Max games, but oh well. Yeah. I keep bringing that series up because, oh man, it's hard to get it out of my head. Yeah. Can't wait to play one in English, hopefully. Yeah. It's worth playing. <laughs> I was really hoping the uh, Vita version of that was going to be brought over because then it will be a lot easier for me to play, but yeah, I'll take it in any form at this point. Yeah. Well, maybe. But yes. I'll also enjoy all those Japanese ones you now have. Yes, I have had some fun with those, especially 4, mm -hmm. which is a very good-looking game. Yep. Why couldn't we have gotten that one in English, yeah, really? Yeah, seriously. Because, I mean, yes, um, it was a good game. Yes. Yeah. But that's the one I will probably be playing. That will probably be in my uh, 2DS LL for a while because I now that Monster Hunter Generations Ultimate or Monster Hunter Double Cross is coming over, uh, probably stop playing that so much on the Vita or the <laughs> my Japanese 3DS. So I think I'll put Metal Max 4 in there for a while and start chipping away at that. And so far, that game is, just seems so so. Maybe they'll get. Maybe we can hope for a remaster of that on the Switch at some point or something. But obviously, chances of many of the 3DS games we missed out being localized are pretty much dead at this point, as it seems like the 3DS will be wrapping up in short order. So I, I heard recently that the PlayStation 4 was nearing the end of its cycle too. Really? And I was thinking already. 
And yeah, that seems too soon. Okay, let's see. Yeah, um, just last week, according to Engadget, uh, PS4 areas entering final stages. I wonder if they're just going to produce only the PS4 Pro. And, hmm. and, uh, and granted, it has been it has been out since 2013. Yeah. Which is longer than I remembered. But it still feels like a much younger console. For sure. Uh, I think it. I really think it took a while for like that and well the Xbox One is still short on <laughs> a lot of games but it took a while for them to get games that really felt like at, that felt like they fully required these systems because for a while it just seemed like well we're, just, we're just going to double up everything from Playstation 3 and Playstation yeah, 4 yeah exactly and often Vita at the same time <laughs> I think um Really, Final Fantasy XV, which just came out last year, and Uncharted 4, for me, are the first games that really feel like, okay, you know, I really need a PS4 for this. But, I mean, yeah, for the most that's, part... It's eh. the feeling. It's like it's it's just only really started coming into its own as a system. Exactly. I mean, after the speed bumps that were the PlayStation 3, because, uh, seriously, the how... I mean... When was the last game released for PlayStation? Because I want to say it was almost up there with PlayStation 4. Yeah, it was really late. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume even later in Japan than here. But I mean, here it was even... <laughs> really well, late. Well, <laughs> um... <laughs> the... Most likely final retail release for PlayStation 2 was Pro Evolution Soccer 2014. <laughs> in February 2014. Which is about what I was thinking. Um, the la- I mean, back when I was still tracking uh, release dates and sales for Japan Demonium, the last PlayStation 2 game I remember was one of the Final Fantasy XI expansions. Wow. That's still sold well enough on PlayStation 2 to actually make it onto the sales rankings for two weeks in a row. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. And, and yeah, I don't think we're going to see that for the, the poor PS3. Yeah. So, I mean, PlayStation 2 was still getting releases up to the release of the PlayStation 4 and a little after. So when did it, when did the PS2 first come out? Was it 2000 or 2001? I think 2001. So that's, I was still in college at the time. So that's like 13 years. Yeah, nine official. Yeah, but yeah, um, very little after 2011. Yeah, but I mean, even 2011 seems pretty late. Yeah. And love derivative games, lots of soccer games, yeah. SmackDown, Madden, baseball again, Major League Baseball, NBA, yeah, Pro Evolution Soccer. Yeah, it was definitely in the... Yeah, it, it definitely stopped having anything really major right around 2010 or so. Yeah, that's still, was, that's still a really good was, run. Yeah, it was, still, it was doing all of the iterative 
um, the ma- and the iterative series. There we go. Manichemia 2, Fall of Alchemy, released 2009. <laughs> in, in America. Uh, it was 2008 in Japan, so it was towards the end there. Well, okay, the earliest PS2 games I've found are like 2000 in Japan. So it must okay. Damn. Whereas the PS3 seemed to just... As, almost as soon as the PS4 came out, it seemed to like just start dropping off the face of the planet. Yep. Wow. List of PlayStation 2 games. Care to guess how many there are? 1,200? You're off by a few. Um, you've got the you've got the correct number of digits. Um, higher or lower? Higher. Two twenty one hundred. A little higher. Twenty two hundred. Quoting from Wikipedia, there are currently two thousand five hundred nineteen <laughs> games on this list. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That's a library? Yeah. You could call it that. And, I mean, I know a lot of those are really good. Maybe not a majority of those, but... Damn. But it's like Sturgeon's principle. 90% of... 90% of science fiction is crap, but... Then again, 90% of everything is crap. Yep. Hey, ten, anyway, ten how, how ten, long have we been going on for now? I don't know. An hour. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Should I let you go and recover? Yes, because uh, I feel like I'm going to start coughing like crazy if I talk too much longer. So. Well, yeah, I need to do some tidying up over here and carry a PlayStation to the secondhand store. Alrighty. I, I just I just completed wiping it. <laughs> cool. So it is now a tabula rasa. It is ready for whoever else wants to brave it. And I've got all of my downloaded content on my new. Um, Slimline PlayStation 3. Sweet. Yep. Eventually, I'm going to get Persona 5 for this thing. As soon as the reset, the secondhand price drops below $40. <laughs> Seriously, the resale price on that is wow. ridiculous high. <clears throat> well, everyone seems to love it. It hasn't grabbed me yet, but it's certainly worth playing at least. Yep. Still holding out hope for a portable Switch version. Come on, Atlas. Give it to me. Give it. Give it to me. All right. Anyway, I will let you go. And um, for listeners, we'll be back with the second segment shortly. Yeah. Hello and welcome to part two of episode 75. Uh, this time I'm your host, Mike Apps, aka Wheels, with... Oh, oh, I thought you were going to say with me as always, because I'm uh, used to it. Uh, uh, with me as always... Family Master, David McBurney, alive after an exodus and also banging my head against things. Yay. And I un- love to hit my head against things. Unfortunately, the constant between these two halves is going to be me with my horrible cough. So I apologize. Really, it's just a horrible cough that we want to go away? Yeah. 
I want you to stay forever. <laughs> stay a while. Stay forever. Uh, but for you, sir, I have a confession. Okay. So I recently watched, rewatched uh, Spider-Man's one and two with the wife. Yeah. And I must admit that Spider-Man one. Better than you remember. Spider-Man one is better than I remember and holds up incredibly well. And Willem Dafoe is brilliant as the the goblin, the Green Goblin. The Green Goblin say. slash Norman Osborn. He's really yeah. good at. He's very good in both parts of that role. Yes. Uh, and there's some scenes where he's talking to himself that uh, are, I think, hold up even better than they did then, because they're just, yeah. like, bananas good. <coughs> uh, I'm still not a fan of Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, but in the first movie, he does get in some, like, goofy, like... I would say, like, classic-style Spider-Man quips that I didn't really remember, so... Yeah, it's better. that one's definitely better than I remember. You still don't like 2? No, I still think 2 is a piece of shit. I disagree, but it's yeah. it's good that we can at least agree on Spider-Man 1. Yeah, Spider-Man 1, really good. Spider-Man 2... You can kind of see how it essentially spawned Marvel <laughs> as a movie company. Yeah. Like, X-Men was a big part, but I feel like Spider-Man was a bigger part. I feel like Spider-Man did a better job of being a comic movie. Like, the X-Men movies were great, but Spider-Man, like, got all the secondary elements right. Like, they did J. Jonah Jameson, like, perfectly. They did. They, they were much less prone to sweeping out really comic booky elements. Yeah, so they... Which is why I feel like it... it it presaged the Marvel house style a lot more than X-Men. Yeah, you get like a lot of the newspaper shots and quick cuts like that that make it feel like a comic book. And I I can see like elements from the second movie creeping in a little bit that I will eventually not like, but for the most part very good movie. Uh mostly great casting. Now let me just throw some shade at the second movie real quick. Because oh I have, some, how is this related to RPGs or questions? <laughs> it was, it was just on my mind, and I wanted to... for the whole world to hear. Yeah. So my first problem with this, the second movie, uh, the underusing of Doc Ock. Alfred Molina was good casting too. He was good casting. I, I was uh, okay with uh, him not having an accent. When... I think it's okay for him to not imitate that precisely. It, yeah. I can understand it being jarring. <laughs> But I think he's underused. Like it's, it's very much an introspect. Like he exists to facilitate Peter Parker introspection. He is right. not the core of the film. Right. And I, and that's problem number two. I absolutely hate the Peter Parker <laughs> introspection acts. I really, really hate it. It just. I understand <laughs> that as you are a fan of goof of goofball Spider-Man. Yeah, it's not just that. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was done well. I think it was really, really boring. And it kind of, you know, I was fine with, like, this, the webs being part of his superpowers and not being, like, web cartridges. You know, that was fine, whatever. Uh, in the second movie, it bothered me a lot, a lot more because of the whole aspect, like, oh, he's sad and now his powers aren't working anymore. It's just... It's deeply uh, sad, boy. Yeah, I... I, I didn't like it just I didn't like it didn't work for me and the oh, problem number three is Harry 
who, you know, I think he was great in the first movie, and in this movie, I just think he's really annoying. Because it seems like every time he's near near Peter, he has to say something like, oh, how's your web web friend doing? <laughs> how's your pal Spider-Man? And he says it in, like, the same, like, semi-insidious way every time, and it's just really annoying. Can you tell that we're setting up for a third movie that's going to have a three-script car crash? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, <coughs> I mean, not the worst thing, just, uh, many slowborn. I'm always sad because I feel like there is a really good movie buried inside of Spider-Man 3's, like, car crash of scripts, and it's just, if they just, if they, if, like, the studio and the director could agree on what villains were going to be there, it would have helped a lot. I think it needed to be Venom. I, I don't. I disagree, but we've had this discussion many times. Okay, well, here's the thing. I'm totally fine with Sandman. I think he's a great villain. I think the storyline for Sandman that ended up in that movie, I don't know if that's what was... Like, this whole, oh, this was the guy that really... The way I, the way I always interpreted that, the way I always <laughs> interpreted that, and I think this elevates the movie a bit to interpret it this way, is that he isn't. He's just the one that, like... Because of like varying like ment- like imbalances in Peter's psyche, like he just like there's nothing that really proves it other than like one or two lines late in the film, and that feels to me like it could essentially be reshoot. But essentially, to me, it's just Peter is on such a vendetta that he like is sure that oh this is the actual guy. This it wasn't the guy I tracked down before. It's this guy. Yeah. And I think that that would work better, and that's how I choose to interpret it. Yeah. Uh, as far as the the be- the Venom bit, um, what's his face as Venom is really awful. Get what uh, his freaking name is? That's Topher something. Topher Grace. Topher Grace. Um, terrible choice for Eddie Eddie Brock. Really, really terrible, god awful choice. <laughs> AJ does get some of his best lines in the trilogy in that one, though. Yeah. Um, but the. The idea of doing, I think, like, the whole symbiote storyline is, like, ripe for a great movie. I don't think you can do it in a standalone, though, is my problem. <coughs> I think you can. I've... Like, there's there's so much here. Like, the problem is, in part, that you would have to have Eddie Brock showing up before Spider-Man, the, yeah. before Venom. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Eddie, Eddie Brock would have to be, it, it would have to be a sequel to a Spider-Man movie, and Eddie Brock would already have to be an established character, for sure. Like, like otherwise, the MCU could do this. Rush. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't I don't think that the Raimi trilogy, which, however else you want to put it, is a very pers- is a much more personal sort of like, this is what Raimi thinks of as Spider-Man, and it's got his particular mix of Kish and, like, Camp, and, like, his idea of superheroics and what's, funny action and that sort of thing. All of that is very Raimi thumbprint. Mm. And I don't know that that, mi- that that mixes with Venom. At least, like, he's evidently not interested in the villain, which is another big problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a problem. And uh, you could see that they, watch rewatching the movies, I could see that they would have had the opportunity to set it up because they establish uh, Jameson's son as an astronaut uh, early on in there, and maybe it's just cartoons that used him as like the pilot in the spaceship that got the symbiote. But it's probably happened in a few different forms of media. But yeah, yeah like <coughs> you have to you have to do a lot of heavy lifting there when you don't have like secret wars to help you. <laughs> right. right. 
That's, that's the other thing is that just like there's there's so much context that you need for like the Venom symbiote suit of like where it actually came from that is would be unsatisfying if it's just oh it fell on Earth. So that's where that's one of the other things is that you end up having to devote to devote pages of script to where this thing came from that's not about Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, that's but true. yeah, this is this is nothing to do with anything. We should have this discussion off air later. <laughs> well, I <laughs> sorry. It's... No, it was fun. I enjoyed it. I just don't know that anyone else will. <laughs> I think they will. I think we've randomly mentioned this. We have, but that doesn't mean that they enjoyed it. Okay, uh-huh. you're not going to edit it out. It's fine. <laughs> no, nope, no way. Um, so to kind of reel it back in. So, uh, how about that PS4 Spider-Man? Not actually an RPG, but it has no. RPG elements, I'm sure. I would really love a more superhero RPGs, especially a Spider-Man RPG. Because I think you can do, like, kind of the comic book style, where you have different storylines you go go and meander through and kind of level up your character as you go through. And I, I think there's a cool game you can have there that, Spider-Man Web of Shadows on Xbox 360 and PS3 is a surprisingly good game that tackles this slightly. Yeah, I've been meaning to go back to some of those Activision Spider-Man games, especially Shattered Dimensions. Web of Shadows (laughs) is the one that's fun to me, because that one has, one, somehow they went full-on, like, what's popular in 2008? Oh, I know, morality systems that are represented by red suit and black suit. Interesting. It has a level up like a level up system for combos. You've got like it, it has good swinging mechanics. Like it's kind of buggy, but I think it's one of the more ambitious and interesting Spider-Man games that they put together. But it also has <coughs> one of my favorite stupid boss fights in a video game ever, which is that like because the black suits reappeared and there's like a giant symbiote army. Oh, there's also a lot of just, like, obscure Marvel characters. Well, not obscure, obscure, but, like, kind of second-tier Marvel characters in there. You get, like, the first area is, like, uh, uh, you're hanging out with Luke Cage. And then the second, like, as you go further, it's like, oh, Moon Knight came to check in on you, I guess? Because that seemed important. Hmm. But uh, the other thing about it is that you have a fight with Wolverine, because Wolverine's, like, there's a bunch of symbiotes out. And also, you've been seen in the black suit. I need to see if, like, you're going nuts or something. And he start, his boss fight every so often gets interrupted by him asking you Spider-Man trivia questions <laughs> that take the form of like QTEs, where like you have to you have to quip back at him what the answer is. And one of them, like they, some of them got really obscure because like at one point there's one where if you get it wrong, and like you take extra damage if you get these questions wrong. Uh, if you get this wrong, then Spider-Man just complains that this is that this information is not even on his Wikipedia page, which at the time it was not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Web of Shadows was an underappreciated, like, real attempt at doing something interesting with the Spider-Man license. I'll have to check that out. Probably not backwards compatible, so I'll probably have to go find the PS3 version. Yeah, it's real cheap nowadays, though. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, um... The only, like, real RPG-ish superhero games we've gotten is the Ultimate Alliance and X-Men Legends games, which... They're very Diablo-esque. Yeah, a series I really miss. Um, They came back on PC a few years ago, but they didn't actually make a new one. They just re-released them. Uh, The closest I've seen come to it is actually... uh, Which doesn't have RPG elements, but would be uh, 
Lego Marvel Super Heroes 2. Yeah. Which sort of follows the same sort of structure and is absolutely Simplified, beat up nice, simple stages. Yep. Real deep cuts. Part of the issue is that, like, we don't get licensed games on a console scale anymore. Like, they yeah. basically don't happen. Yep. Like, there's the Lego games, and then there's an army of just awful mobile things that none of us has ever touched and are barely aware exist. Yep. And I would rather actually not they exist. Whatever IDOS Montreal is working <coughs> on is our last gasp of, like, an actual big-budget licensed superhero game. Well, here's hoping. Yeah. But let's jump right into an actual question. Yeah, you're the one that knows what questions we're bringing up yes. this time, because I know that you guys answered some in Part A. We did. So this is one we did do in Part A, but I want to do again and maybe... We'll Hear my important opinion. We'll approach it from some diff- <laughs> different venues. Is uh, shoot, where is it? <laughs> We're professionals. Uh, here it is. Is there too much handholding in modern gaming, or not enough? Uh, we kind of guys can approach this a lot in terms of like map navigation and like finding your way around a game. So I think there's some other avenues we could talk about with this question. Like <laughs> philosophically, like I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this by saying that I hate the phrase handholding. Yeah, yeah. Like as a general rule, like because because the phrase doesn't hold your hand has become this very like gatekeepery way of saying like oh this is a video game for people who play video games and don't mind sitting around wondering what the hell they're doing. <laughs> but uh, like I, I understand, given the source of the question, that this was not meant in that fashion. So yeah. I want to clarify from that I don't mean any aggression to you, Budai. Uh, but uh, as for this, like, video games have different, like, every game has a different objective, and it, and a lot of them is get the player to the end. Mm. And, like, facilitate that in a way that's as natural as you can get away with. But bearing in mind that everyone processes information differently. So you have to, like... When a game sits you down and tells you, like, this is what every stat block does, or this is, like, uh, these are the nuances of what this what this attack does, or, like, here's, like, let me test you to make sure that you can do this repeatedly. Like, all of these things exist in part because you hand them off to, te- to like, various, like, spot checks and testers and people who've never played games, and you look at, you observe and try to extrapolate from where everyone screws up. Sorry, this is me pontificating already. No, it's okay. uh, pontificate away. But in general, like I feel there's this tendency for people who play a lot of games to be upset that these that the game is explaining things to them that they can already into it because they understand the the language that games communicate in. And there is that sort of unwritten, like, way that video games communicate. You see it a lot when people are praising game design of, like, oh, well, if you press buttons here, you'll note that your character animates this way to indicate that this won't work or that this is working. And all of these little things that are designed to convey information to players via sound cues or visual cues or all these other things. And, like, all those are true, but they all rely on a vocabulary that a lot of players might not know because they didn't play games that use that vocabulary or, like, this is their first stab at a new genre, their first stab at games in general. Like, there's all of these different X factors, 
And it can be nice to for developers to try to find ways to let you skip out on tutorials you obviously already understand. But, like, there's also just situations where, like, especially with complex mechanics, where you just can't explain things. At, you just can't expect players to intuit the core of a mechanic just by forcing them to use it. There will be nuances of the mechanics that you <laughs> need to be able to know that the player understands to build aspects around them that you're just going to have to sit down and tell them about. Sorry, I've got a lot of opinions on this and semi-related questions that I'm probably rapidly oscillating between. No, but, that's fine. But yeah, like there's a lot of... The, the way that video games... I, I don't think that there's... To go back to the actual core of the question, is there too much or not enough... It depends on your game's objective. I mean, like, there's obviously, like, an audience for games that very specifically don't explain things to you. Like, I mean, the resurgence of games like Dark Souls and, you know, anything else that's built around giving the player limited information and asking them to extrapolate the rest it shows that there is very much a market for the idea of ex exploration, not necessarily of environments, but of mechanic and aesthetic. And in, in those senses, like, those games are coming back. If you want that kind of experience, you have a lot of ways to get it now. Mm. Certainly a lot more than you used to, say, ten years ago. I don't think that things have spun all the way in the, swung all the way to the other direction, because, I mean, every game that is designed to sell as many copies as possible across, like, a broader spectrum, like, any given, like, AAA game or Nintendo game or anything like that will have, at the very least optional tutorials that explain every single mechanic that the game expects a player to know to complete it. Yeah. Even if it doesn't mean to 100% complete it, but at least to get from point from point A to point Z uh, and not have a situation where they sit down experiment for like have to waste their time for an hour trying to work out the precise uh, movement technique that the game never explained to them. Uh, and then get pissed off at the end because it's just like, how was I supposed to know that? To put it another way, any time that you play a game and think, how was I supposed to know that? That was a developer assuming that you had figured something out. Here's a good example. You can get through Dark Souls, the first one, and this is, I think, a point of crit criticism for one point in this game, without jumping, without even knowing yep. how to jump. But there, it's, a, it's <laughs> such an unintuitive action. Like mm -hmm. there's not, it doesn't have its own button, and the button combo that produces it is baffling. Yeah, <laughs> and there is a boss that requires you to jump to defeat it. So if you went through the whole game and perfectly understandable that you never used it, I mean, sure, there's one, there's like, there's there's some... a couple of places where a jump is useful, but since you've never had to, you've never had to do it. Or, or, like, even places that you have to get, like, side areas that you can't get to without jumping. But it's like, you might see those areas, but you would assume <laughs> you just didn't figure out how to get to them. Right. And, I mean, there is an instruction early on in the game that tells you how to use it, but if you never actually do, or just forget... Or even just miss the instruction. You can absolutely just walk past it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble, and that it is required that you beat it. To to reach deep into your history, I believe that boss is the reason that Dark Souls did not score a five when you reviewed it. Um, 
it was a contributing factor, yes. And I recall it being a major contributing factor. It was, and it's that is still the game's whose score I hmm. because I played through the game and I felt like I understood it but I think that should have lowered the score. Which I think then made me F up the score on Dark Souls two. So <laughs> it's just As an overcorrection? Yes. It's just a cluster. Oh well, but like, we all have things that we regret. I mean, but they're both really good games, so it, it it's all fine in the end. You can't you can't go wrong. Yeah. Pick up the remaster when it comes out for whatever. Like if it's already out for the platform you prefer, do that. <laughs> yeah, I got it on PS4. I'll get it again on Switch. I'll be grabbing the Switch version. <laughs> <laughs> um, <But>, uh... <laughs> the other thing I was going to say on this topic is, I think developers in general have gotten a lot better at teaching people and putting in tutorials like one of the complaints of uh, some of the recent Zelda games which I don't think are completely invalid are that they spent too much time on tutorials and teaching how to do things I don't necessarily I don't you know if there's other people this is not me saying that because I, I don't necessarily agree with that you can hear my claws coming out. Yes. No, no this is not me saying that. I, <laughs> I know, I'm just saying, like, you're, you're yes. clarifying that because you can hear what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, all that said, I think Breath Souls found a happy middle ground at teaching people, but not doing it. Did you just call it concise. Breath Souls? I, I don't know. What the hell did I just call it? You just called it Breath Souls. Breath of the Wild. Uh, I think does a good job at finding a middle ground at teaching players, but not like angering the tutorials. I guess would be the best way. It's one of those things. It's it's an interesting question. There's a lot. There's a lot between here and there. Yeah, it's but, it's hard to do. It, it and it, it it also depends on the needs of the game. Yeah. Like there there's a there's a lot of times people like sort of avoid this answer like they might give it but they don't for example print it just by virtue of the fact that it's really unsatisfying to say because it's almost always the case what is the game trying to accomplish yeah and you know going back to breath of the wild for a second i think a lot of like the joy and fun in that game is discovery so yeah i think kind of giving you a lot mashing all the basic tools together in the beginning kind of leaves all that discovery open to you like immediately after that whereas I don't necessarily think that should be the approach for every single Zelda going forward <laughs> because that yeah. w- that wouldn't have worked in a game like um I'm blank on the last Zelda game's name Skyward Sword because <laughs> I love that game that wouldn't that the, that would not have worked in Skyward Sword because like, you don't even... get all the mechanics right away Let's let's even contextualize this further back. Like, if you go back to something like, I'm gonna I'm gonna like briefly travel through the series. Ocarina of Time. Its tutorial is essentially the entire first dungeon, because that is your like that is going to be your primary. The thing that you don't know how to play in 1998 is a 3D Zelda game's dungeons. Everything else isn't urgent enough to worry about. You'll figure it out. The dungeons are the dungeons are going to be what you're going to have difficulty working out. Mm. So that first dungeon is thrown at you immediately to teach you how a Zelda dungeon works in 3D. Mm. Majora's Mask has an obnoxiously long tutorial, 
but you need that to understand how this game, like how day and night, like the day, the three day cycle affects, like, it's not just what does this person do in the day? What does this person do at night? It's what does this person do on each day? Yeah. Like that needs to be drilled into your head immediately. That is vital for that game. Yeah. Like Twilight Twilight Princess probably had its beginning reworked to make it so that it was introducing mechanics to you at a slower rate. Like, I'm going to guess, I'm going to take a wild guess and say that the that when it was just a GameCube game, you were not required to fish at the beginning of it. Hmm. I would believe But when that. it became a Wii game, they needed you to <coughs> get to the different kinds of actions that the Wii Remote was going to have you... That, like, the different kinds of actions and how the Wii Remote interacted with them. And so I would also suspect that in its initial incarnation, it may not have been required that you immediately go and buy the slingshot. But the slingshot was a way to immediately introduce pointer aiming and how that was going to feel, because that was going to affect how you interacted with tons of objects in this game, and you needed to get used to it quickly. So, like, it's one of those things like, how does the tutorial fit? Well, sometimes the tutorial is to introduce you to a new way of playing that you need to be used to, because you don't have context for it in other games. Just stuff like that. Yeah. Game design is is art, and it's... (laughs) Diff- like I'm not, I'm not making a joke here. Game design is art, and it's very difficult, and it's it will always affect everyone differently, depending upon what they can bring to it. Mm. You do your best to try to strike as many people as possible, but it's very difficult to work out. Like eventually, you know, you just have to tell because you can't show, and some. You know, so eventually, it's just like here. This is this is what you have to do because. This is how I get you to the parts of the game that are fun. Hmm. And then eventually we all just make more roguelike type games. Eat a dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, As we all know, I despise roguelikes conceptually with the, every fiber of my being. There's so many different varieties now. And there are even some that I like, but I just... There are so many that it's just like... No, make a level. I hate you. Make a level. <laughs> oh, it is making a level for you randomly as you go. Don't don't make the machine make a level. Make a level. This is how Skynet is going to be formed. Skynet is going to be formed from like five million games of Spelunky, and it's going to realize that it's accidentally made the same one and question its meaning in life. <laughs> But two people accidentally play the same seed of virtual hide light. That is when Skynet will be formed. <laughs> yeah, I bet you didn't know that there are like a million possible random seeds for the overworld of virtual hide light. Ugh. ugh. Alright, let's move on to another question. Um, do you feel the complete game over is a valuable or outdated mechanic? I always found it interesting games like Dragon Quest never had a complete game over mechanic. It's it, we're gonna end up on the same spot here. Oh yeah, it's like, true. Defend roguelikes, but it's also just like <coughs> it, it's very different. Like, what does a complete game over mean in a lot of these? Do you mean like you are forced to retreat to a prior save? Losing progress, I would say. Because like that's one of those things where like a lot of games will have game overs that like you'll lose some progress and then you won't lose others. I mean like one of the things that I've uh, occasionally batted around the idea of is that Dark Souls is the Dragon Quest of of hard games. Yeah. Like, Dark Souls, no matter what it does to you, 
outside of very specific circumstances like being cursed, the worst it can ever do to you is send you back to a bonfire. Yep. Like, it, it very specifically puts you in a situation where it's nearly impossible. Like, it's not as... It's not so much as two, where even your weapons get repaired when you go to a bonfire, but given the rate of re- weapon def- degradation in Dark Souls 1, that barely matters to begin with. Yeah, it's true. But, like... <laughs> well, two also reduces your max HP. To yeah, a point. Like to two, a point. Two compensates that mechanic. I can't remember if weapon degradation exists at all in three. I think three might restore your weapons at bonfires as well. Yeah, who cares about three, though? Three's a good game. You need to play it properly. Uh, I tried. It just just doesn't. We'll have this discussion later. It, yeah. Okay. It just doesn't jive with me. I think you should give it another shot with clear eyes. I tried. I got pretty far. I believe in you. Uh, Something just feels off about the. I freaking love it. Uh, in any case, uh, I did. Sorry, I did me. restart Bloodborne with a different class and started in. Or not different this class, different weapon. Different weapon. Yeah, a different weapon is basically <coughs> different class. Yeah. <laughs> the moral of the story is the whip sucks. I love the threaded cane. I just I was god awful with it, I guess. Yeah, like it it depends on your playstyle. Yeah. But like as for hard game overs, like I I think that people consider a hard game over as like like it's easy to associate that with inherent difficulty. Because it is, it is something that is telling you, like, you screwed up so bad, you have to go back. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, at, at the, I feel like what's falling out of favor is how far you have to go back is an arbitrary save point placed an arbitrary point before the area you died. Right. I think because the... Oh, good. I was going to say, I think before it was kind of just like, you know, that's what we all do, and I think eventually developers started to realize not the way we should do it for every single game. Well, it's also just that, like, <laughs> the prevalence of autosaves really changed the way that this worked. Right. Like, this, this is one of those things where the game is holding your hand. It's saying, don't worry about saving, I have that. Yeah. I'll save for you, and I'll probably save a lot more often than you ever would manually. And, like, that, that is a game mechanically holding your hand. It's saying, no, I got this. You just focus on the game. Mm. And it's easy to not think of it that way, because it's just like, oh, that's just convenience. But that's, that's a lot of what hand-holding is. It's convenience. It's saying, the thing that you would be spending your time on is not the gameplay. It's not what I want you to spend your time on. Go do this. And so, like, when it takes a mechanic out of your hands and says, no, I, I do the saving here, that's it saying, like, here's, here's where the gameplay is, not here. Right. That's and so, cool. like, yeah. And, like, that's, that's why you have, that's why these hard game overs have, like, even though they haven't necessarily gotten particularly rare, they feel rarer because, like, a lot of games are auto-saving, like, every time you enter a new room. And so suddenly it, it just it doesn't even feel like a game over when you die because you're not spat back. And I feel like a lot of games that use the hard game over now are it's like more an element of the gameplay than like just something they do to be traditional or anything like that. Like yeah, thinking of the etching Odyssey games, which especially depending on your difficulty may not do this, but in general the Hard, the game over in that is used as <coughs> like 
kind of a risk-reward thing. Like you're exploring a dungeon and you have to consider, do I keep going further? Do I have enough resources to keep going further? Should I head back to town? You have to consider the fact that you don't know what's around the corner. Right. And and it's sort of kind of the same risk and reward of game overs in like a roguelike of just learning to be careful, learning escape and dig deeper and take a risk. And and that mechanic, that thing you you kind of alluded to, the fact that Etrian Odyssey lets you turn them off. Yes. Is the game telling you, like, (laughs) is the game admitting to you that as far as the designers are concerned, do I have, am I willing to take the risk of what's around the corner is a gameplay element that they care about. But at the same time, they know that a lot of their players don't. Like, the, the those players only see it as, I'm being punished for being interested in this world. And so they give you the option of, like, saying, I don't like this mechanic, please take it away. Mm. And that's, that's actually the game, in some sense, offering you its hand and saying, do you want this help? And it's, it's one of those things where, like, they... they there's, it's important to think about the psychology of, what is the player being offered when this, like, how, what is the player being told when they get a game over? What are they being offered when that, like, what are they being told when that possible, like, failure state is taken away? <laughs> and I really, there's, there's just, well, sorry. I really appreciate uh, a lot of the additional difficulty options that have started popping up in games of late. Although I think it's pretty hard to balance a game over having a lot of those, you know, it's it's nice to see that. Because you know, uh, okay, and you know, for people that do like difficult games, I think um, you can make the case that there's a lot of games that are too too easy if that's kind of your style and don't give you the option to make it harder. Uh, So I really appreciate when games let you do that, but. You know, not everyone likes that, so I think developers should be focusing on the people that they're probably the minority. <laughs> I, I've brought up the Wizardry 4 story before. If you're interested, go look up the history of Wizardry 4. It's hilarious uh, and a little bit tragic. But uh, it's it's one of the first, like, market research, like, real-time market research on what happens when you make a game for the hardest of the hardcore. Um... But, like, I feel like the increase of, like... I I feel like games are generally getting slightly better at having granular difficulty Mm. uh, changes, where it's not just... Like, in general, video games have typically had a difficulty setting, or even if they're feeling a little ambitious, a difficulty slider that's, like... that affects everything. The idea that a player who wants easy combat, wants easier puzzles, wants easier inventory management. All of these things must be bundled together as the same thing. And as time has gone by, I feel like developers have gotten better at the idea that, like, actually players who want one aspect of the game easy might want the other (coughs) part harder because that's what they came here for. Mm. So, like, you can look back at, like, Silent Hill uh, 2 and 3 and some of the later ones have... Uh, differing difficulty levels for action and puzzles. And so, like, a player that came to the game to try to, essentially, because they wanted to, like, have to explore these environments for clues, but didn't really want to get in fights, 
could set the difficulty mo- the action difficulty to easy, but the puzzle difficulty to hard, and have a much harder time trying to solve these really like off the wall bizarre puzzles. Uh, <laughs> but like you know, it gives them the option: of, is that the experience they wish to pursue? And like, I feel like games are getting better at that. Uh, one thing that I saw that I've I've just started playing: Bloodstained Curse of the Moon. If you'd like. Uh, Castlevania 3 style games is very good uh, I wholeheartedly recommend it it's 10 bucks it's on everything pick it up but uh, let's think Curse of the Moon has your your primary mode you have your normal your nightmare your ultimate like these these increasing difficulty modes but you also have a stop what it refers to not as a difficulty but a style when you start the game you have casual and veteran and veteran style the game is clearly balanced around this there are very specific places where if you're playing in veteran style you will die in ways that it's impossible to die in casual. Because what veteran style does is it gives you Castlevania-style knockback. <laughs> That's so what you that get, does. You get hit, and you get knocked... It, like, you get thrown back a few, like, about a block or two. And that can toss you into pits. There are enemies very specifically designed to, on veteran, toss you into pits. And casual mode doesn't do that, because some people just get frustrated. Because, like, they were like... because. That kind of, like, I need to plan this jump such that the enemy cannot possibly hit me with a projectile while I'm in mid-jump and can't defend myself. For some players, that's interesting because, it like, it produces a very methodical style of platforming. For other players, it's really obnoxious because it's like, I, I'd already committed to that jump. There was nothing I could do to fix that. And the game understands that these two kinds of difficulty are not married to each other and don't have to be treated the same way. And I, I think that that's a very good thing, because, like, the, I could see someone playing through this game on, like, Nightmare Mode. Nightmare Mode is really hard, regardless of which difficulty you're on. And I could see someone playing through the game on Nightmare Casual Mode, because they that produces the kind of challenge they enjoy. I think that it's very good that we are getting better, like, designers are getting better at designing around the idea of, like, okay, design different kinds of difficulty. I remember hearing that the game Celeste has a lot of options for how to approach its difficulty. I, I need to play that. It's a uh, quote-unquote core platformer that's been out on a few things, but I know it's on Switch and is apparently very good. But it apparently, good it apparently has a lot of options for how, for what kind, ways to change your difficulty that are not interlocked. Yeah. One, or like... Uh, oh, one that I don't necessarily like as a game that has a lot of this is Bravely Defart. Yeah. Which lets you tweak lots of different things. Some not necessarily related to difficulty, but like tweak the random encounter rate, which isn't like difficulty specific, but is can change your experience drastically. Well, I mean, like the encounter rate is part of your difficulty balancing, but <coughs> it's a more subtle part because it's usually entirely in the developer's hands. Right. But yeah, that's a, that's a great example of just like, you know, giving the pl- like, and in in some cases, I like in some ways you can give the player too much in the sense that like suddenly they have all of these sliders that affect all of these things in a really granular fashion in such a way that they might have difficulty parsing between all of these how to produce a a play experience that they actually want given all the options they've been given. If you and mess, that's, the, that's the other side of this coin. If you mess around with the cheat shop in a Disgaea game and don't really know what you're doing, um, yeah, that could probably... Sucks to be you. Yeah, it could be very bad. But yeah, like, this is a fascinating thing. There's, there's, 
I could be talking about this for hours because there's so many ways to approach this. And like we're not, we haven't even touched. We have spoken entirely as though difficulty is approached in a game as a static concept. And a lot of games use adaptive, which yeah. is an entire different kettle of fish. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you've died on this section like 15 times. We're gonna like this this enemy spawn. We're this is not happening because it's obviously like you're not learning from it and you're obviously not having fun. <laughs> uh, like in Dark Souls 2, you if you kill an enemy a number of times, which suggests. Well, not necessarily, but generally suggests that you implies that wrecked. you have mastered whatever challenge that that. Like, it's not just that you're being wrecked, but also whatever whatever that enemy is, <coughs> it's not the thing doing the wrecking. Right. And that that produces its own problems because, like, a player who really is truly awful at the game could put themselves in a situation where they have unbalanced the soul economy. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's very true. It's a very hypothetical situation. You'd have to be truly dis- despicably terrible at the game. But at the same time, it's still a thing that exists. Like yeah. that, that could happen to a person, and it's concerning. But uh, sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> I love this subject, by the way. It's like, a, it's I, a I, really interesting subject. Yeah, like we're we're kind of approaching every aspect of like difficulty tutorials, game overs. Like we've we've touched on all of these without ever gliding to a. <laughs> stop anywhere <laughs> we do one last question before we wrap this up yeah let's do one more I got a, I got a bit more in me I often see people argue about which is better science sci-fi Final Fantasy or medieval well certain t- titles like the first three probably tended a little more toward traditional fantasy the series has always been a combination of both to me Final Fantasy 4 and its towers is one of my favorite I mean Final <laughs> Fantasy 1 has a floating castle that looks like it's floating out in space Final Fantasy 1 involves time travel. <laughs> yeah, it's true. They almost never touched that again. They got real con- they got real leery about that except for like FF8 which was a much weirder form of time travel. Yeah. Time personal seeds. Hey buddy, have we talked about what seed stands for? Remember what does it stand for? The game doesn't say it. It's it only appears in like an Ultimania. I looked this up and I've been enchanted by it ever since. What does it stand for? Seed is an awful acronym. It stands for Specialist Lesson, Elegant Man, Elite Danger Zone. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a thing. It made me so happy. It was the dumbest thing ever. Like I remember looking at it and wondering, what, what does this stand for? They never elucidate it. And then it's like, oh, 20 years later, here's the freaking... Snippet from an Ultimania guide where it's just spelled out in English. Specialist lesson, elegant man elite danger zone. <laughs> oh, but yeah, they, ne- they never really touched uh, time travel again. Yeah. Uh, like, they, they always, at the very least, have airships, which puts them a little further in the fantasy tech tree than most pure fantasy does. Yeah, but I mean, the great thing about Final Fantasy to me is it can always be whatever the heck it wants to be, for it the can most even part. Com- it can even combine the two. I mean, like, look at... Like, FF7 is the poster boy for, like, here's a bunch of sci-fi stuff, but the game very clearly draws a deliberate contrast between the futuristic, like, cyberpunk dystopia of Midgar... With all of the, like, pastoral, here's just a town. It barely even knows what a machine is. Like, you have the developed parts of the world that are, like, 
Midgar and Junon and those places, and then you have like Calm or like that. I love the do. One of the things that I think makes FF7 memorable to me is the diversity of areas. Like you'll get, you you wouldn't get Casa del Sol <coughs> in the same game in prior games. Right. It well, just wasn't. It just didn't happen. Well, six, I think, was approaching that, but not. To they the, they don't have not, the they don't have the space to do it. Like right, they don't have the right. tile sets to do it. They probably wanted to. Yeah, like seven. A lot of seven is them making good on ideas that they clearly have in six that they can't nail because they just don't have enough space. Right. But. But yeah, that's, yeah, like that, hmm? that's the great thing about Final Fantasy to me is they've been able to jump around to all different kinds of things and still manage to make it feel familiar even though like straight fantasy fantasy, sci-fi whatever they want to do it like, never feels rote right it always like, it always feels like Final Fantasy like you look at 15 which uses like a lot of real world very modernist fantasy yeah and it still very much feels like a Final Fantasy game and it followed up like 13 which is like as techno future as Final Fantasy gets. Yeah. Especially with the gods that are basically machines. Yeah. <coughs> Man, I freaking love 15, by the way. It's, uh, it's ending really did something to me, though. I'm not sure what that means, whether that's good or bad. <laughs> uh, it, uh, I was not expecting, spoiler alert, anything that brutal. Like, just... Yeah, I've heard the end. I've heard. It's. I haven't been able to finish it because, again, I'm trapped in VR goggles. Yeah, it's quite bleak. Yeah, so I've heard. I've heard that they may make some slight revisements to aspects of it with uh, the next round of DLC. So I guess we'll see what happens. Do you want any spoilers or no spoilers? No spoilers. Okay. I think I know what you're referring to with quite bleak. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I appreciate. I appreciate Final Fantasy's capacity to jump from era to era, but still try to keep like a a general Final Fantasy tuness to it, and to like to intermix these uh, these sci-fi and these fantasy elements in differing proportions. Because like the initial question brings up FF4, which has the lunar whale and everything to do with the moon late in the game. It's just yeah. like the hell is this doing here? <laughs> and it's just like. You get that in because you know every game mixes a different proportion. Like you yeah. get into FF six, and that's got like everything that it's a simp, It's a normal town that has. It's normal towns that have had like arbitrary amounts of steampunk just grafted onto them. Oftentimes, very obviously late in life. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean you've got twelve, which I think is definitely fantasy focus but then you've got like basically star wars battles yeah like various 12, parts what's interesting is also <laughs> how much it shows that that fantasy and science fiction are moods as much yes. as they are like actual actual like settings like final fantasy 12 is very fantasy focused it's very like fantasy novel politicking but then there's also just all this final fan there's all this star wars in it but it still feels essentially fantasy because of how where it places its emphasis on yeah whereas something like ff7 which has ton again to draw back to that has tons of like this area is very fantasy and very like 
it, it has so so much of its plot is preoccupied with nature, but because of the fact that it's contrasting nature with technology so much, it becomes inherently more sci-fi, even though it has all of these pastoral fantasy elements. Yeah. It's it's great. I love this. I love I yeah, I've missed having these I missed having this on Monday. I'm glad to have <laughs> these discussions again. <laughs> <coughs> more more of the story. Final Fantasy is awesome. Yeah. And I'm glad Even the Final Fantasies I hate are probably awesome. Yeah. Just you go mod your you go mod your Gilgamesh card into ten unholy wars and go kill Omega Weapon. You have fun, kids. <laughs> Why do I remember what the Gilgamesh card modifies into uh, an epic? You go play your time compression filled eight if that's what makes you happy. You you go curse all seeds. <laughs> I'm gonna be over here throwing rocks at the window and playing Saga Frontier. Speaking of video games that have a schizophrenic relationship between fantasy and sci-fi. Hmm. Good old Saga Frontier. That game is crazy pants in terms of how it puts those things together. And Saga, Saga as kind of an outgrowth of Final Fantasy, is not at all wedded to whether it's final, whether it's fantasy or sci-fi. But it always feels more fantasy than than uh, than Final Fantasy, even at it, you know, even when it has robots in it, because it's never focused on technology. Yeah. Um, and I'm feeling like. Um... The Alliance Alive feeling like that as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, def- it's definitely super fantasy focused. In yeah. a good way. Yeah, no, I, I am quite enjoying Alliance yeah, Alive. Me too. I finally had some time to put <coughs> into it. Enjoyed, uh, enjoyed playing through the opening dungeons and seeing like places where it's like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't arbitrarily kill a monster that's not trying to kill me. feel like the game will probably punish me in some fashion for that later. <laughs> Quite possible. Yes, but it does. <laughs> <laughs> I did get to give a goblin an antidote, though. That was good. Nice. Also, pro alliance live tip: don't walk near water. Don't ask. Yeah, wh- oh, don't, don't, don't ask why. Just don't do it. Just you just will don't see do the anim- the second you see the animation of what's of what's lurking near the water. Yeah. You're like, oh no, no, I do not yeah. need this in my life. So I'm at a dungeon now where you actually have to fight some of those and. Uh, Oh god. I'm given to understand that eventually like it's to your benefit to essentially chase those things down because yeah. they are they drop things, I guess, but Yeah, they are yeah. quite brutal if you aren't expecting them. <laughs> they are absolutely not a thing that like the the first time you see one in like a dungeon, the game basically pause like speaking of hand holding, the game pauses and says, No, don't fight this. Yeah. And because if it didn't, it would just be awful. It would be the worst. Even, even oh, yeah. though the game gives it, like, it does try to visually communicate, maybe don't touch this guy. He's kind of a dick. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it gives them these special animations that makes them look terrifying. And yeah. then, but, like, it's still, it's very important that, like, some players aren't going to re- be that quick on the uptake, and they're going to get attacked, and they're going to hate the fact that they got arbitrarily killed. Yeah. Uh, Legend of Legacy had a similar sort of thing where it had like some weird giants that would stomp your face, but yeah, not not as interesting I think as oh god, there's a body of water that I have to walk. Hopefully, people are buying that game because uh, assuming they make another thing, I want it over here. Damn it! Uh, <coughs> 
And unfortunately, I have not played much more of Strange Journey Redux because I'm having trouble forcing my way through the boring early parts. I, I played through Strange Journey again like three years ago, and I don't think I'm ready to play that game again. <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever be ready to play Sector yeah. Aridanus again, or... What's H? I remember there being one that was like Phases of the Moon, and that nearly destroyed my life. Oh, God. Yeah, I think I'm just going to use this opportunity to play Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse. That's a good game. Yeah. Loved 4, so more 4 sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's got... It's got a lot of good stuff in it. I appreciate it. I appreciate some of the things that it does with, like, some of the weird uh, bits of mythology it drags in, and in, in general, uh, focusing on a conflict you don't often see in SMT uh, in SMT games as, like, a main conflict. They're generally very preoccupied with Judeo-Christian uh, sort of lore like that and and that is important in smt for uh, apocalypse but it has a lot more for other like pantheons to do excellent <laughs> forward to that then <clears throat> but we should probably wrap this show up before i start coughing again so um send us your questions in the usual places on the comments on the episode on the forums I usually put a link in for the forum thread where you can leave your questions I think we've only gotten one there so far but that's okay, feel free to use it we'll continue uh, to check it regardless Yes, and um, the questions from this episode will take a bit to get to because we actually have more, we have a backlog now um, and by the time you hear this episode, we may have already recorded uh, the next episode <laughs> because of said scheduling conflicts, which I mentioned in part one. So, uh, yeah. But yes, get us your questions. We'll get to them. We obviously love answering them. And um, you know, you you don't always have to leave questions. You can you can just say, hey, I'm playing this now, and I find these things interesting about it. Uh, <laughs> like we like we obviously do a lot. Or if you think my opinion of Spider-Man 2 is awful and I'm wrong and terrible, um, I will debate you, I guess. <laughs> but not really. Um, instead, uh, tell us what you would love to see in a Spider-Man RPG. Because that would be more fun to discuss. <laughs> or tell us why Spider-Man Homecoming is the best Spider-Man movie. Because I would love to see lots of those comments. Because it is. <clears throat> anyway. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Does whatever a spider can. Spins a web. Any side. Catches thief. Just like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I think I'm going to use Spider-Man theme songs for this episode now. Okay. Use the Japanese one and the English one. Yeah, I'm going to use spectacular, spectacular Spider-Man. Are you saying that you don't love the Japanese Spider-Man theme song? No, I'm saying I love the Spectacular Spider-Man theme song, because that cartoon is awesome. I believe it, but how often have you listened to the Emissary of Hell Spider-Man theme song? Probably not at all. Okay. Please listen to this. I've sent it to you in the past. Okay. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit you down, and I'm not going to leave this call until I know you've listened to it. All right. <laughs> but on that note... 
I'm going to end the recording. We will see you next time. <laughs> I didn't realize we were still recording. I am. <laughs> and now I'm not. See you all next time. See you.